Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories and challenges. Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Welcome to today's Leader Dialogue Part 2, sponsored by the Baldridge Foundation and SOAR Vision Group. Again, we are in Part 2 segment of workforce engagement, specifically physician engagement. And joining me again today is Dr. Schoolman. Roger, uh, glad to have you back. Thank you, Lisa. Good to be back. Perfect. And last week, we had two guest executives that came out of Memorial Hermann Health System and have recently retired in late 2019. And we were, again, talking about workforce engagement. Chuck Stokes had been on a previous show talking about nursing and allied healthcare provider engagement. And Dr. Shabbat joined us to really kind of hone in on physician engagement, compare and contrast before COVID and after COVID, which was a really, really fascinating discussion. I encourage our listening audience to go. If you haven't listened to that segment, please do so. Today, we're going to unpack some of those findings and topics that we discussed. Please hit our Leader Dialogue website, again, leaderdialogue.com, and follow along on um, the homepage. So, Roger, with that, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Lisa, and welcome back, gentlemen. We're so glad that you could make time to to go for another half hour with us because we just scratched the surface of this whole notion of, of how you maintain engagement in such an unusual environment for healthcare. I wouldn't say we were a boring industry before, but we were pretty able to handle most anything that came our way. We adjusted well. And again, let me congratulate the two of you you had you had extraordinary timing of picking a retirement date just prior to all of this coming down on us to a bunch of poor unexpected leaders in healthcare and i count myself in on that very good fortune too in terms of my retirement but we're so smart now aren't we because uh, we, we, if we had been in charge, everything would happen perfectly. Okay, there you go. <laughs> but, the Monday morning quarterback. Right. That's right. Uh, that's right. But again, I mean, when, when we talked last time, we had some great conversation about how we adjust, how we relate to, to this, and what's happening to the industry, and some really unheard of things going on. Uh, we talked a bit about consolidation, too, and how the role of consolidation is impacting both the health systems, the hospitals, and the physicians. So, Dr. Shabbat, could you just talk a little bit about what's happening with with consolidation? We've got two kinds of physicians, those that are overworked, and then we have some who are underworked. Well, we do. Of course, the overworked physicians are those you see on TV and the uh, emergency department and the intensive care units, along with the nurses and technicians and everybody else. Of course, uh, some hospitals at the peak have had to convert most of most of their hospital into an ICU as opposed to the dedicated small units that we typically have. The underworked physicians are those that are in specialties that really uh, rely on patients having procedures or needing to be in the hospital or in an ambulatory care center or, or to come to their office, whatever they could be a, a, a medical subspecialist. 
And typically offices very, very, very busy, schedules full, but not now. For procedures, patients are putting off procedures to the extent that they possibly can. And secondly, for office visits, uh, if patients are not in dire need, they don't go to the office visits and, and many uh, offices don't wanna see you if you're sick. So um, they're left with uh, very few patients in their offices. So this has created a, a long playing, unstable situation that doesn't have an end. It's not like our usual fires and floods and earthquakes and things like that that were tornadoes that were really good at handling. And so I think it set the stage for physicians who might want a steadier source of livelihood than what's happening now with COVID. And that could come with employment or with acquisition from a firm or an insurance company, somebody with deep pockets, much deeper than the pockets of the average physician practice. And I think probably most of your viewers know it and everyone may think of physicians as being relatively well off but Chuck and I know them to be capital poor. They really do not have capital. They do not have reserves for the pandemic. And so they need much deeper pockets, whether that's a hospital or a health system or an insurance company or private equity or some other way of weathering a long playing storm. And we don't really know it's when, when it's going to end. And uh, what we do know is it's not anytime soon. It is really going on now five months. We've been able to handle shorter acting crises very, very well, but this is going long. And of course, that has significant impact on the psyche and the emotional state of our employees. And then again, that it does include physicians as well. And so they've got financial pressure that they previously perhaps didn't have, or it's a different kind of financial pressure. How are they doing in terms of keeping their staff engaged, waiting for this to flatten out, slow down? They're accessing Paycheck Protection Program funds to even pay their staff. You know, it's really hard to acquire a good staff. You don't want to lose them. Of course, if you don't have any funds coming in, you can't pay them. Physicians are not capital poor, so they don't have reserves to cover long periods like this. So I think some are looking at whether it's concierge practice, where they have a subscription rather than, than uh, fee-for-service. They may be looking more seriously in the future toward alternative payment programs, not fee-for-service. Fee-for-service has taken it really on the chin with this pandemic, and there's no end in sight for that as well. And actually, I guess... You know, we've been kind of talking and dabbling about population health for two decades or more. You know, we've been living, we've got one foot in one canoe and one foot in another fee-for-service, I mean, and value-based. I mean, at some point, this may actually benefit us to push us into value-based care. Again, the reimbursements and the revenue streams have to follow. What would you say to that topic? Lisa, I think you're exactly right. And also, one other thing, we haven't talked about this. The pandemic has uncovered something that we've always known about, and that are, that are the inequities in our, in our population here in the United States, where because of the pressures of fee-for-service, many of our disadvantaged communities 
have no access to healthcare. And as a consequence to that, they're the ones who are predominantly dying of COVID. Folks that get regular healthcare, regular checkups, get their immunizations, are kept in good health. They take their, they can afford their medications. They take their medications. They're dying at a much different rate than those from disadvantaged communities. So the issue of health equity, again, not well served in the fee-for-service environment, probably better served in a value-based care environment. And it would, would also be better, frankly, for physicians as well. Yeah, Chuck talked a little bit about in our last segment about the healthcare inequities that it wasn't new. Like we as healthcare providers, we kind of chuckled when we heard that, right? Like, what do yeah. you mean? Are they We've kidding? Always, like, we, of course, of course that's happening. We've been talking about disparities with African-Americans and Latino populations for 20 years. I mean, and there's nothing new here. It's just that COVID-19 put a spotlight on it. But our physicians, they've also been dealing with this. And I'll, I'll just speak for Michael and I in our experience here in Houston. We're still a very fee-for-service oriented community overall. We were not a state that participated in Medicaid expansion. So our annual emergency room visits in our system, we were in the 760,000 ER visits per year between our 17 facilities. And so these people still landed on our physician's doorstep anyway, because they they had to come in to be on our staff. They had to come in and take care of them. And so they've been taking care of these individuals uh, with or without the ability to pay for a long time. And added to the stress of what we have seen over the last several years is physician burnout. And again, we've all said from a leadership standpoint, what do we need to do to make sure our physicians stay engaged? Because we all know, again, from our Baldridge experience, we're a magnet organization also, that engaged physicians and engaged employees are the ones that have the higher propensity to deliver higher quality care, safer care. And if you do all that and a good patient experience, and if you have engaged physicians and employees doing that, your probability of financial success is much higher and you'll have resources to continue to grow. They're all inextricably those five elements are inextricably related to each other. And so on the physician side, Michael and I spent a lot of time because we had the challenge of putting academic physicians, private physicians, and employed physicians all under the same tent and trying to accomplish common goals uh, from our organization and our community. And they all have their own uniqueness about what makes them special and how they perceive their business and how they perceive their role as a physician. And so I'll just say this and I'll turn it back to Michael, but there are several things from, I'll talk from a leadership standpoint about physician engagement. And there's four or five bullet points here I'd like to just cover about, if you want an engaged medical staff, the first thing I I always told our executive team, and I would tell new fellows that would come in doing administrative residencies, that physicians understand yes and no. What they hate is the slow no. So when you, if you want an engaged medical <laughs> staff, be honest with them. Tell them, no, I can't do this. I can't do it now, or I can't do it for six weeks, or till next year, till next budget year, or whatever. They understand yes and no. 
They absolutely hate the slow no, and it adds to disengagement. Transparency in data reporting. We always, leaders and executives are always flaunting our data in front of physicians. And you have to remember, physicians are scientists and they look at data in a very different way than we look at data. Michael would tell you, we look at monthly reports and quarterly reports. That means very little to physicians and data. Data, they want the data accurate, but they want to see what the data does over time because they're scientists in nature. Third thing is when you are running against any, any kind of problem within your organizations, get the physicians involved on the front end. Do not bring them a solution and say, here it is, don't you love it? Because I can tell you the answer to that is always no, because I wasn't part of the solution. You didn't get me involved on the front end. And more than likely they had something to contribute that would have made your solution better. The fourth thing is integrity is hard to earn. You earn that over time, but you can lose it in a minute if you are dishonest with your medical staff. And you, it is very difficult to regain that back. The fifth thing, physicians hate surprises. Do not surprise your medical staff. If you've got something that's coming out there, be transparent, be upfront about it. And the other thing is nothing happens in healthcare without cooperation and collaboration with your medical staff. Nothing meaningful or substantial is going to happen. And so I will, those are just five or six, just keep in mind about engagement with physicians. They're dealing with burnout, just like uh, nurses and other allied health professionals, and we should we should be partners. We have to work closer together than we've ever worked before because in the future, what you're seeing is more physicians are running more health systems today. Health is a clinical enterprise. Why wouldn't you want somebody that's clinically oriented running the enterprise? Absolutely. And so that Dr. David Callender uh, took over my job as president and CEO. You look at, again, Mayo, Geisinger, Cleveland Clinic, major organizations across the country are being led by, by physicians. And you're seeing more service lines with a dyadic relationship between an executive and a physician. But these are all things that really contribute to engagement from an executive standpoint. Michael, before you, I want to just jump in and say thank you, Chuck, for that. I mean, those are very practical suggestions. And a lot of our listeners are not in the healthcare space and all of those things also, I mean, they're, they apply elsewhere too. It's not just yeah. in healthcare. So thank you for that. Yeah, okay. Sure. Michael, we're interested in hearing your take on this. Let me give you a, a take on how we uh, engage large numbers of physicians uh, at Memorial Hermann. But I want to say that when I was chief of staff at Cedar sinai Medical Center, Los Angeles, we created a compact, not a contract, but a compact, an agreement between the physicians and the hospital. And we did the same thing at, actually at Memorial Hermann after I arrived. What Chuck's points were in the compact. The physicians agreed to help the uh, hospital with quality and safety, but the hospital agreed to always straightforwardly share plans and even faculty acquisitions with the medical staff leadership. And so these things went back and forth and they, they got to engender 
trust rather than distrust. And as the Chuck's points were all about trust. If you think about healthcare, almost every cost in an office or healthcare facility is generated by the order of a physician. Absolutely. It's their order. If you, if you don't rise up without them. them on your team, you're going to have a problem. Now, what, let me just tell you briefly what we did at Memorial Hermann. Our physician organization included, as Chuck said, both private physicians, the majority of our physicians were private, a complement of, uh, of employed physicians, and a set of academic physicians from the University of Texas. And they all work together in a set of specialty committees as part of the physician organization. But they didn't, and they had the good discussions and dinner sometimes with wine, but nothing really happened with the minutes were taken and then anything said was lost in the minutes. So we created a way for physicians as part of our quality and safety high reliability journey for physicians' meetings to create processes and procedures for physicians and for the organization that go up through the physician organization, go to our medical executive committees and to our board quality committee and ultimately the directors. And so it started slowly at first in 2007, 2008, after I, I arrived, Chuck arrived in 2008, I was a year before. And then it really got rolling when physicians saw that their quality and safety initiatives and motions would actually go up through their governance and the system's governance and then become the law of the land on all of the campuses and the offices, they got very engaged. Uh, in my last full year of the year, they passed 292 evidence-based practice motions. Wow. These included wow. Um, yeah. requirements for certain forms of monitoring after procedures, the leveling of which, which physicians could do what procedures. These are very difficult things for physicians to uh, agree on. Rules for their own medical staff behavior. And then they, after they, what was really interesting after that matured and they set those rules and got them into their rules and regs on all the campuses, then if physicians were not following them, they would take them to peer review. Not me, not <laughs> them. Beautiful. And nice. Beautiful. And that was absolutely, I, I will tell you that a healthcare organization cannot achieve high reliability without physicians being on board. There's only so much the CEO and the chief clinical officer, Chuck, I can do. You empowered them. That's what you did. Yeah. Is you empowered we empowered them. them. Absolutely. Right. And I, yeah. I, you know, I've served as chief of staff. I believe in medical staff empowerment. I can tell you that we actually had to get an, an outside legal opinion to be certain that we could give this to these physician committees and bring them up through governance in that way. And they said, if you do it this way, it's entirely kosher. Everything's going to be fine. We did it, and the physicians loved it. That's a just a wonderful story about if an organization is really attentive to the organizational health. And as Chuck has said many times, it's you can't be healthy if you don't have engaged employees. You cannot be healthy if you do not have engaged physicians in the healthcare right. system. And so how wonderful that Memorial Hermann was able to 
become, truly become a high reliability organization, your attentiveness to the Baldridge principles really set you up so much better organizations to be successful in the midst of something unexpected, unprecedented. It just set you up for success, didn't it? Well, let me give you a single example. And there, there are like hundreds of examples. But one of the problems when Chuck and I came on board was retained foreign bodies. We were having them every month at our ultimately 17 hospitals. All around the system, there were retained sponges, retained this, retained that. The physicians, it took them the better part of a year, but the physicians and nurses working together, I I should mention that in these committees, these are physician organization committees, they realized that they needed nurses and technicians and pharmacists there. So ultimately, they all got to vote. Anyway, they developed and voted on a policy on what is to happen in the operating room if a a sponge or needle count is incorrect. And the ultimate thing that happens, aside from the mandatory x-ray 7 by 24, is that if the surgeon wants to continue, even though there's a missing sponge, the, the surgical tech and the circulator are to pull the instruments back and cover them up. <laughs> oh yeah, I wow. mean Chuck's wow. taking his head. <laughs> oh, no. That's real. That's real. Until it's so all the right things can happen. So they develop that policy about what happens in the operating room, and in addition, they approved installing RFID sponges, RFID tags, in all of the sponges, so that in addition to the correct sponge and, and needle and all that, all those counts a wand is passed over the patient in the operating room under his anesthesia before they're closed, like a wand at the airport. And if there's any, even if the, we, we do that, even if the count's correct, because sometimes there's missing the wrong number of sponges in packs. And so there's a procedure for that. So I can tell you that when I left, the longest running hospital was in, it was in its ninth year without a retained foreign body. Wow. Amazing. We give out awards Amazing. for this. We've given out 59 awards for hospitals going a year or longer without a retained foreign body, not okay. just in the operating room, wow. anywhere in the hospital. Amazing. That's high reliability. Congratulations. That became very rare. And that was one of those things too, that the recommendation came from the medical staff about those sponges. It was a considerable expense for us to get the sponges with that little Raytex string in there. But they said, you want us to be a reliability organization. You're telling us you want us to be safe. This is the best technology. You need to spend the money to do it. And of course, I approve the, the expenditure for us to do that throughout our system. But they're the ones that, that came up with the rule. Anybody refuses to do a timeout or mark a site, everybody disengages from the procedure. Everybody backs away from it. Nobody passes. But it came from the medical staff because it was the relationship that had been built over time through collaboration and cooperation. Didn't happen overnight, but we got there, you know, over time. And the the other thing I would just say on the engagement side, especially for the people that are in the hospitals that are listening, is you got to have leadership members of your executive team that really enjoy working with them and everybody doesn't enjoy doing that. And we've, we've seen examples and certainly Roger, you and I know over our many, many years career, we've had team members 
that we've had to coach and counsel about, look, if you can't get along with the medical staff, you know, this is going to be a long, a long career for you, or you're not going to be very successful in this. Exactly right. Or you can't stay here. You might go somewhere else, but if you can't get along with the medical staff, you can't. It's not an option. Organization. (laughs) And so it's having that candid conversation, but it's amazing how many people, you know, really do in today's environment, don't enjoy the back and forth and the challenge, but it's, it's only when we're candid with each other and we have the confrontation that we get better. That's great. Maybe in the remaining minutes that we have, you could tell us a little bit about Relia. What are you hoping to do? How are you changing uh, healthcare now? Now that you're now that you have all the answers. Sure. <laughs> well, I'll I'll let Michael uh, dive in on that. I'm I'm the the latest joiner. Michael and uh, Dr. Rod Brace are the two really original founding members of Relia. But Michael can kind of give you the background of really what we're focused on. Our, our niche is fairly focused. Rely is really short for reliability, high reliability. What we've found, interestingly enough, literally when I, I didn't know what to expect when I retired and we created this company, my phone started ringing immediately. Uh, I had done you know, many presentations and uh, visited many medical centers uh, with regard to high reliability and, and coaching just as part of my work at uh, Memorial Hermann, there was, there's just a lot of interest out there in, in high reliability per se. I mean, everyone, all hospitals have a QI program and, you know, PDSA or Six Sigma or whatever, and they're making incremental improvements on in a good year in their rates of hospital acquired infections and, and things like that. What high reliability is about is um, the reliability of uh, commercial aviation or nuclear submarines, nuclear carriers, major theme parks. That would be zero injuries, zero. That's very different from getting it down 10% from last year and takes a completely different approach. And, And so there's been very significant interest in that and we have been very busy. I will say that our on-site work has been totally stymied by COVID and uh, other means of getting together. So uh, our, our work is uh, continuing, although remote at this point. And what a great use of the experience that the two of you, the three of you, have uh, gathered over a very, very successful career. So wonderful. Thank you, Thank you so much for all that you've shared with us today and, and last week. And I know that's going to generate a lot of interest and a lot of questions. The high reliability is one area that the three of us have worked on for the last 12 years together at Memorial Hermann. But we also focus on uh, service line leadership because that was a a very successful model for us. And I've been doing service lines literally since 1992. I've implemented service lines in four different organizations over my career. And the other thing is employee and physician engagement because those are the the three things that I think we have a lot of in-depth knowledge about is service lines, employee physician engagement, and high reliability. And uh, we do do a little executive coaching. And we've been actually doing a lot of that with our friends. Just I call it comfort coaching because we've got friends all across the country that are just experiencing a lot of challenging times with their staff and their patients and their community with this. So we just, you know, kind of donate our time to helping them get through this and uh, just be an empathetic ear. 
but that's that's really kind of our niche uh, in the industry. I know a lot of people who do need that comfort too. They got to talk them off the ledge these days, yes. don't you? Some <laughs> Absolutely. Physicians and uh, administrators as well. Yes. Sure. I am curious because I've, I've read in different articles and seen some webinars. Again, those organizations who've leaned into high reliability or Baldrige as a framework, do you think they fared better during COVID than those organizations who didn't have, again, kind of that mechanized operating system to work by? You know, the Baldrige just provides, a, it's, a, it's a reliable operating model for any industry. It's about knowing your customers, engaging your staff to be stellar and to exceed people's expectations and to deliver uh, on customer needs and uh, in healthcare, high quality. But if you were in any other business, education, manufacturing, you, you want to deliver a high quality product. And again, it's we've used this, Baldridge has used this many times, engaged employees delivering great service, great quality, financials take care of themselves and you have the resources yeah. to continue to grow. That's that's kind of a winning formula. And the Baldridge, it's not about winning any kind of award. It is a responsible platform for leadership and to run your company. And that's that's the real message about getting on the journey. It's not to get on it to win any kind of award. It's a responsible operating model. And the people that have fared well either pre-COVID or, you know, during COVID, the ones that have good operating models, those are the ones that are really doing, they're doing better. I mean, it's not that they're without their challenge. And so, I'm, you know, I'm obviously a, a big proponent. I've been involved with Baldrige for many, many years. So highly recommend. Congratulations it. on your great success. That's awesome. Thank you again for your time. We really appreciate all of your experience, practical advice, and again, your continued effort in improving healthcare. You guys haven't stopped. So thank you for that. You're making other leaders better. On behalf of the Baldridge Foundation, Soar Vision Group, Business Radio X, we thank you. And uh, we look forward to um, many more encounters with the two of you. Thank you so much. 